Well, hello there, and welcome back to the courtroom. This here is Closing Arguments, and it's great to have you with us here on the podcast. I am your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. As always, we have the star of our show in Mr. John Razumich of Razumich and Associates, or Jack, as most know him by, and as we call him here on the show, uh, joining us for another criminal law-related discussion, because that's what we do on this show. Uh, for anybody that's joining us from prior episodes, you'd know that what we do is we tackle different criminal law cases, not only that maybe Jack has been a part of in his time practicing law throughout the greater Indianapolis area, but also, you know, we talk about some different, um, you know, greater schemes of things when it comes to criminal law as a whole. In fact, our last episode, we took a deep dive into the Supreme Court, really, as a whole, you know, its role throughout uh, history and how it's grown to be the power that it is today. Uh, but today, we've got a fun one for you. Today, what we did was we we took a lot of different, you know, feedback from you guys, our audience, in terms of different myths surrounding criminal law. Like, you know, think about it. How many times have you been in a conversation with people and, and you're, you know, you're debating a particular topic that may have to do with police or may have to do with, uh, you know, courtroom procedures or even just the pure fact of hiring an attorney. Well, today we fed, you know, we took a lot of those myths from you guys and we're going to be debunking some of them, chatting through some of those common misconceptions. And really today's topic, it's the legal myths that must die. So with that being said, let's go ahead and bring Jack on and get today's conversation rolling. Jack, good to see you. How you doing today? Hey, Ryan, not too bad. How are you doing? I am doing well. I'm doing well. I'm excited about today's episode. You know, as I was looking through our cheat sheet here, uh, a few of them come into mind. You know, I, I know for a fact I've debated a few of these with with buddies of mine. So, uh, you know, these are just great legal myths that are, you know, are, are um, our awesome audience had sent in to us and we're going to go ahead and debunk these. I, I'm sure you uh, you get asked these uh, from time to time, shall we say. We do. Uh, and it was, it was fascinating. I wasn't sure what we were going to actually get as far as feedback was concerned, but the the number of times that these particular questions came up um, or some variation on them came up, uh, very similar with what we get from actual live people who are calling with their legal issues. So it, it, it's very clearly a situation that a lot of people have these misconceptions and that's something that we really need to debunk for them because mm-hmm. uh, what, what you don't know can hurt you. And, and these are things that clearly people weren't aware of. Sure thing. So, so we're, we're going to kind of segment today's show uh Folks, you know, we're going to be jumping into some police myths right here off the top of the show. We'll then move into some courtroom myths. And then we've got what we call the biggest myth of them all that we're saving for the last. So be sure to stick around so you can catch that one as well. Uh, Let's get right into it, Jack. First myth I have on the list from the viewers and the listeners. Do the police have to read me my rights before speaking to me? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely not. And that is, um, we touched on that very, very briefly during our Miranda episode, but... um, to kind of bring you up to speed, the police only have to read you your rights if you're the subject to what's known as a custodial interrogation. And a custodial interrogation is a very fact-sensitive thing that that, that involves whether or not you're free to leave is, is perhaps the biggest part of it. Um, the, the Supreme Court of Indiana, as well as uh, of the United States, have carved out exceptions for what you would consider to be community caretaking style questions. Uh, we get this question most oftenly as it relates to DUI arrests or DUI investigations. We'll have someone who uh, got stopped for speeding or something on those lines. And one of the things they'll always ask us is, well, they didn't read me my rights. Is that is that bad? Is that, you know, can they can something be done with this? And the answer is no. Uh, very basic information gathering questions like in what's your name? Uh, where were you going in the instance of uh, a DUI investigation, have you been drinking? Those things are, are things that the courts have held are non-custodial, they're community caretaking functions. So you don't have to have your rights read to you for that. Uh, the other thing that, that comes up with that sometimes is if you voluntarily start talking to the police and engaging with them, that can operate as a waiver of the requirement that they read you your rights. So if they ask you, hey, where are you going? Um, and you blurt something out like, um, you know, these movies are mine. I didn't steal them. Um, that might cause an issue for you. So generally speaking, they only have to read you your rights. If you're a subject of a custodial interrogation, that is a fact sensitive thing that your attorney can address for you and explain for you in greater detail. Uh, but unless you're on dragnet, uh, they don't have to read you your rights every time they simply want to ask you a question. 
Alrighty, Roger that. And Jack, this next one, I know this is a popular one. This one that I know I've debated with other people, and that is, do police have to tell me if they are working undercover? I have no idea where this myth came from. I I, I genuinely yeah. don't. There had to have been a movie or something somewhere. I would say it was probably popularized. Part yeah, popularized yeah. by media and some, you know, a movie, a TV show, something like that. But what's your take on this one? Absolutely not. The, the reality of the matter is police officers are working undercover for a reason. Right. And that's because they don't want the people that they're investigating to know that they're cops. If a police officer who is working on a drug investigation, for example, had to admit to a drug smuggler or a gang member, yeah, I'm a cop, you'd have a lot of dead cops. That that would defeat the purpose entirely of under, right, undercover right. investigation work. The, you the, the police have yeah. rules, but they're not leprechauns. You know, there, there aren't, <laughs> you know, there are magic constraints that they've got, but mm -hmm. you know, it's not one of those things where if they don't hop on one foot and turn around before putting the cuffs on you, it's, it's okay. <laughs> Same situation sure. here. You can't just expect an officer to say, Oh yeah, well, uh, they got us. They, they asked whether or not I was undercover and I had to tell them. So no, they don't mm -hmm. have to do that. Um, the easiest way to not worry about that, don't do something illegal where an undercover cop would be investigating you. So that's that's bonus tip number one as far as that case is concerned. <laughs> I have no, a feeling they, we're going to rack a few up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they never – they don't have to tell you that they're undercover. That's mm -hmm. That one really needs to die. That one's insane. Sure. Yeah. No. So, and, and kind of struck from the same vein here, another one that we had from the audience was, um, do police have to be honest with me? So it kind of struck from the same vein, you know, that they, do they have to tell me if they're undercover, do they have to be honest with me? That one is actually a little bit more complicated. The, the short answer is the police don't have to tell you the truth. Um, but they also can't outright lie about fundamental things. And, and and like a lot of stuff in the law, there is a little bit of a difference on that. So one of the reasons that we tell people not to go to interrogations without an attorney present or to automatically demand the right to have an attorney present for any questioning is police officers receive specialized training with regards to questioning people to get information out of them. Um, and one of the things that they're taught is that they can, I suppose, bend or massage the truth is, is the easiest way of looking at that. Um, a great example of this from back in the day, if anyone's ever seen the movie uh, L.A. Confidential, there's a scene where the officers, uh, Guy Pierce's officer, I, I can't remember his name right now, he's got three different suspects in three different interrogation rooms. And he goes between the rooms and he tells each of the individual suspects um, that the other ones are ratting them out, even though everyone is basically staying quiet and not talking. That gets the information that he needs out of it. There's, there's a philosophical argument about that called the prisoner's dilemma. Very similar situation. So the police don't have to be honest with you in that regard. The police can tell a suspect, we have a confession, we have eyewitnesses, and that's considered to be a perfectly legal, perfectly reasonable interrogation technique. What the police can't do is the police can't outright lie to you about what will happen if you don't talk to them. So for example, we had a case uh, here in Indiana, I want to say maybe about 10 years ago, it was, uh, it was, out of the, it was either out of Lake County or, or uh, one of the counties up there in the northernmost part, part of Indiana. That case involved police officers telling a suspect, um, you should probably just, you know, you really need to talk to us because you know you're not going to get a fair trial in this county. That was over the line. The police could not lie about whether or not somebody would receive a fair trial because that implies that the police have some sort of control over the system uh, to, to deny that. Uh, another thing the police can't do is the police can't lie about if you don't talk to us, we're going to take your children away. So they can't make threats like that to to impact your constitutional right to remain mm -hmm. silent. But as far as the concept of being able to tell you, you know, we have two eyewitnesses who saw you commit this robbery or, you know, we got the fingerprint results back on that knife and we know that your fingerprints are on the murder weapon. That type of a lie is perfectly OK. So from that perspective, 
this myth is is half true half mm-hmm. untrue D- depending on the context of what they're lying about they can absolutely lie to you um yeah which is why you really need an attorney there anytime yeah. you're being questioned by the police yeah yeah i mean this one i i feel like we're debunking many myths here today on the show but i feel like this is one that has a good reason for being a myth uh just because they're kind of our two sides to that coin mm-hmm. um moving on here to the next one you know in terms of the police myths that we have from our viewers here Jack, the next one being, do I have to stop and talk to the police? So I guess if if an instance where somebody's called out by the police or if they're moving past them, do they have to stop and talk to the police? That one is another complicated one that the answer, like a lot of things in law, just boils down to it depends. Sure. There's, there's a case uh, that we briefly alluded to uh, last time. It's a 1960s case called uh, Terry versus Ohio that discusses the concept of what's referred to as a Terry stop. A Terry stop is a brief detention by a law enforcement officer if the law enforcement officer believes that some sort of illegal activity is happening in their presence. So, for example, if... Um, if two people are walking side by side down the street and one person hands the other person a Ziploc bag full of a white substance that may or may not be cocaine, it may or may not be sugar, the officer has the authority to conduct what's referred to as a Terry stop and detain those people temporarily for the purposes of investigating whether or not a crime is actually happening because they have what's referred to as articulable probable cause to believe that a crime has occurred. Where you don't have to stop and talk to the police generally is if you're just walking down by the street, uh, down the street by yourself, and a police officer yells at, hey, hey, come over here. I want to talk to you. You don't have to stop. You don't have to acknowledge them. Where it becomes complicated is a lot of states, Indiana, Indiana is one of them. A lot of states have what are referred to as resisting law enforcement statutes that state that if a police officer acting under the color of duty has by visible or audible means ordered you to stop, at that point in time, you at least have to stop. You don't have to talk to them. Your right to remain silent is is universal in any interaction with the police. But if a police officer specifically says, hey, stop, I want to talk to you, That at that point in time rises to the level of they have articulated a direction to you that you need to stop and failing to stop at that point in time could potentially lead to criminal liability. If what they're saying to you is, hey, come over here, I would like to talk to you or I want to talk to you, um, you're probably okay. And, And given the number of departments that are currently wearing body cameras or have dash cameras, it's been a lot easier for us to make these determinations as to what the actual instruction was. Um, as a practical matter, what my advice to people has been is if you are told to stop, if the magic word stop comes out, you need to stop. Um, if it's just them shouting at you of, hey, I want to talk to you or, hey, come back here. I got some questions for you. That starts to get in the really gray area with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you do stop, just remember, you do have that absolute right to remain silent. Whether they read it to you or not, your rights always exist and you do not have to actually talk to them. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's a very 50-50 situation. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of these myths will shed what light we can on them, but some of them, I, I guess, I guess we can absolutely debunk. They, they do. They have to tell you they're undercover. So take sure. that, take that as a gospel truth. That one is completely debunked. The rest of them, a lot are very fact sensitive, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and kind of struck from the same vein in terms of when police would have to, you know, demand or give that order or ask you to stop and talk to them kind of from the same vein. Do you have to consent to a search? I know this is kind of a popular one that, that right. was coming in from our audience. You don't have to consent to a search. You never have to consent to a search. Okay. Because we have the warrant requirement. If searches searches are done by one of two ways, they're either done by what's referred to as consent, which means you agree to allow them to search, or they're done by a warrant, which means that the officer has gone to a judge, explained to the court, this is why I want to search this person, this house, this car, this phone, what have you. Uh, and if the judge agrees with that, the judge signs the warrant, and that authorizes him to search at that point in time. There are 
a number of exceptions for, well, no, they actually are called exceptions, uh, to the warrant requirement that have been developed by the courts over the years. For example, in Indiana, if a vehicle has the odor of raw or burnt marijuana in the car, that represents what's referred to as probable cause for a warrantless search of the vehicle. They don't need your consent. They don't need a warrant. They will always ask for your consent. And the reason that they ask for your consent is just like the cops have certain magic words that they're controlled by sometimes, you as a defendant also have magic words that can sometimes control what happens in your case. If you consent to a search of your vehicle, you've basically said anything that they find is a-okay. I have allowed them to do this. It's basically the very similar to providing a confession to them. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, it's usually a bad idea to give the consent to a search. Now, the flip side of that is they will absolutely hold you. If they think that there's a basis for searching your car or uh, searching your house, they will absolutely hold you there and wait for a warrant to come up. And I have seen the way that police officers search homes and vehicles under the best of circumstances um, these would not be the best of circumstances. They will probably look like a tornado went through your house or went through your car. Um, and that sucks. Don't get me wrong. That absolutely sucks. It is not fair for them to to react in that way. It is not fair for them to uh, basically bully people like that. But again, constitutional rights are only valuable if you treat them valuably just like the people who who write in and ask us the question about the police didn't have to did the police didn't read me my rights do they have to mm -hmm. do that same situation here if you are not exercising your right to decline a voluntary search yeah. anything that comes out of that's going to be okay so mm -hmm. so you do need to tell them that you're not consenting they will probably they, they will almost always get a warrant if they have gotten to the point where they're asking for consent to search they probably have a basis for searching it one way or another yeah but you don't have to make their job any easier the mm -hmm. one caveat that i will put to this is if you refuse a certified chemical test in a dui investigation they will absolutely go get a warrant to draw your blood the problem with that refusal is they will, most states will suspend your driving privileges under what's referred to as the implied consent law. Uh, for example, if you refuse to take a certified chemical test, if, if the officer has probable cause to believe that you were operating a vehicle while intoxicated in Indiana, mm -hmm. they will suspend your driving privileges for one calendar year. Oh, wow. Um, and there's, and there's no specialized driver's license or hardship license you get during that one-year calendar period. You are just suspended for one year at that point in time. So that one, even though, even though the general rule that we usually tell people is don't make their job any easier, don't agree to a search of your person, your property, what have you, that one is admittedly a little bit more of a, well, if they're going to get a warrant and draw my blood anyway, yeah. I really, really need to not be driving for the next calendar year. Right. Um, so do not, do not under any circumstances refuse to submit to a certified chemical test. Let your, let your defense attorney argue that there was not probable cause for the chemical test, uh, but don't put your driving privileges in, in danger for over a year. This is a really bad place to get around if you can't drive. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And, and Jack, I'm glad you brought up the car because that segues us beautifully into the next one that we got from our audience. And that is, do I have to get out of the car when told to by police? Sometimes, you know, yeah. yeah, this is a tricky <laughs> one because we've seen we've seen a lot of these videos surfacing online and uh, social media. And, and mo there's always two sides of the coin and there's arguments thrown right. both ways. And so this is a really interesting one, especially these days with body cam footage, you know, people using their cell phones on a regular basis right. anytime they're interacting with police. So talk talk us through this one because this is a peculiar one. Like everything involving the police, it's again going to be sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, As a practical matter, if the officer tells you step out of your car, I, I, I suppose they can't they can't magically force you out of the car just by sheer sheer personality, sheer force of will. What they can do is if you refuse to get out of the car, they can open your car door. Um, in some cases, if you refuse to roll down a window, they can actually break your windows out to get into your car. 
and then they can physically take custody of you and remove you from the car. And if they remove you from the car, if they've gotten to the point where they are physically manhandling you for life or way of putting it to get you out of the car at that point in time, any further struggling with the officers would fall under the category of um, a potential resisting law enforcement charge because you were actively resisting them executing their, their legal responsibilities for, for conducting an investigation. So, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to the extent that the answer is sort of yes, you're not breaking the law by refusing to get out of your car if they just say get out of the car. If you just sit there with your windows rolled up and your doors locked, there is legitimately case law from the Indiana Supreme Court that says that is not a crime. So, so you don't have to do it right away. If it gets to the point where the officers have forced an entry into your vehicle, either by opening your door uh, manually because you didn't lock it. Um, interestingly enough, again, locking your door does not represent forcible resistance to a law enforcement officer. That's, that's hmm. another thing that the courts have, have upheld um, because that's considered passive and resistance has to be active. But if, if they get into your car by busting the windows out and opening the doors, which is one of the reasons why it might be better in the grand scheme of things to give that degree of cooperation, if they bust the windows open, open the door, and physically grab you and restrain you to remove you from the vehicle, at that point in time, um, yes, if you continue to refuse to get out of the vehicle, if you continue to fight with them at that point in time, you can absolutely be in trouble for a resisting law enforcement charge. And, and that applies if you do the whole go limp thing at the same time. Um, you know, some people, some people take the attitude of like, well, you know, I'm not resisting. I'm just not helping to walk. It's like, you can make that argument. I don't know that I would recommend mm -hmm. it. You know, if they have to, you know, if they have to, if they have to fireman drag you because you refuse to walk, I don't really think that's going to go as well as you think it's going to at the end of Sure, sure. No, that's that's a good point. So thanks, thanks for kind of. I mean, again, two sides of the coin, two schools of thought here. But at the end of the day, um, it helps to adhere uh, in some instances. Um, final one that we have from our audience here, Jack, on the police myths that we're going to be covering today is: Do I have the right to one free phone call? No, that one's a very easy one to answer. Um, Phone privileges, you'll hear people who are incarcerated talk about, be told about or talk about phone privileges. Privilege is the operative word with that. It is a privilege for behaving yourself sounds like a very negative way of putting it, but effectively that's what it is. If you behave yourself, you get privileges like using the telephone. Now, as a practical matter, most law enforcement agencies are not so recalcitrant or stubborn or, or just vindictive to not allow somebody to call a loved one, whether it's a friend, a family member, um, just someone else to let them know, hey, I've been arrested for X. Can you please you know, tell my job, feed my dog? Um, you know, let my wife know things of that nature. Um, they'll allow for you to do that. Now, there there are, of course, going to be exceptions. If you are very clearly violent towards either the officers or anybody, they're not going to allow you to use a telephone under those circumstances because it's a it's a safety risk. Um, if you spend the entire time that you're interacting with the police you know, insulting them or threatening them or, you know, just, I don't know, calling their manhood into question or something like that, they can absolutely deny you the ability to use the telephone call as a courtesy because that's what it is at that point in time. It is a courtesy. Mm -hmm. And we will routinely get calls in the middle of the night from family members who say, hey, you know, my husband just called me from jail or my my son just called me. He was arrested. They just He just called me. I need to do something. Um, there's not really a lot that we can do at two in the morning. We're always happy to take the telephone calls. Sure. Um, but it, that is, that's kind of, that's a situation. It's like those people were arrested. Um, they kind of kept their cool. They, they mm -hmm. behaved themselves. They were, 
at least not outside of the pale of the concept of respect that you'd usually see with regards to a police police suspect interaction. And as a result, when they got to the jail, they were allowed the ability to use a telephone as a courtesy to let someone know this is what happened to me. Uh, yeah. But make no mistake, that is absolutely a courtesy. It, it is sure. not a requirement. If you are abusive, they will not allow you to do that. And then you have to wait until um, there's the opportunity to get out of your cell the next morning and make a collect call, which a lot of cell phones don't take collect calls these days. That's been a thing that we've noticed is you have to specifically let your cell phone provider know that they are going to, you are going to accept a collect call from a facility. Um, so you could, if you're, if, if, if you are belligerent when you're being arrested, which, you know, I understand it's not fun to be arrested. No one enjoys it. Sure. Um, you can find yourself basically stuck with no one knowing what happened to you for a couple of days. So just always remember to keep your cool. You're not going to make your situation any better by arguing. Um, you know, just, just be quiet. Don't talk to that an attorney present. Wait for your attorney to fix the situation for you. Yeah, I think that's an underlying theme with this batch of police myths that we've got from our audience. Just what you said, Jack. Let's let's now kind of flip the script here. Let's move into the courtroom myths. Obviously, Jack, you're no stranger to a courtroom. Uh, first one that we got in terms of courtroom myths specifically from our audience is this idea of you are entitled to three plea offers. Talk us through this myth and, and why it exists in the first place. I think that someone in a jail cell at one point in time wrote that on a bathroom or wrote that on some sort of jail pamphlet that got put or <laughs> got passed around. Cause that, that's again, much like the whole do officers need to tell you that they're undercover. This is one of those things that every attorney has heard this at least once or twice from a, from a, from a client who's incarcerated. Um, the idea that you're entitled to three plea agreements with each one getting better than the last is absolutely false. Um, first of all, you're not entitled to a plea agreement, period. You're constitutionally guaranteed the right to a trial. You are not constitutionally guaranteed or even statutorily guaranteed a plea agreement. Most cases do receive plea offers from the prosecutor because the, the risks of going to trial sometimes – are very, very steep. There, there are significant risks sometimes at going to trial compared to resolving the case without the need for a trial through a plea agreement. Part of that's the ability to know exactly what's going to happen to you. Uh, part of that's the ability to agree to less time and, and take discretion away from the judge. But you're not guaranteed that. Now, a good attorney will negotiate and continue to negotiate. And there is a back and forth process between the defense and the prosecution. And that might be why people think that you're entitled to three plea agreements because a lot of times it does take three or four rounds of negotiations to kind of get to the bottom line where everyone is, is as happy as they can be under the circumstances. Um, but it's by no means a guarantee we've had, we've worked on cases where, uh, you know, we got what literally was the best offer that ever came down the pike with the first go round. And that was based off of our previous relationship per previous, uh, working history with these prosecutors, you know, you get to know each other's style and there's the idea that, okay, you know, we can go back and forth and eventually get here, but we know we're going to get here. So here's your best offer right off the cuff. There have been other cases where we've had like seven or eight rounds of back and forth on plea agreements, just working out the nitty gritty details um, before we had it resolved. But there's no, there's no situation where it's like, I'm guaranteed three plea agreements or plea mm -hmm. offers. Like that's, that's just not a thing that doesn't, mm -hmm. that's not real life. So, so from that same vein, the next one that we had was you are entitled to three continuances. Talk us through this and how that one also might remain the same. Three is a magic number for a lot of people. I've <laughs> seems that. like it. It seems like it comes like up it. all the time. You know, everyone, uh -huh. I don't know. Um, you're you are you are allowed. There's no entitlement for continuances. Continuances are allowed at the discretion of the court, and the court will allow you as many continuances as the court sees fit. Um, generally speaking, in in the modern system that we have right now, there are so many cases going on. There are so many things that happen uh, on any individual day's court docket that if one of the two attorneys and, and admittedly it's almost always the defense attorney 
um, asks that the case be continued for further discussion, further investigation. The court is usually happy to grant that simply because there are, you know, 20 or 30 cases behind them. Um, to give you an example, we get we get weekly jury trial readiness memos on our cases. That means that uh, the individual courts that we're in, which I think that at last count, there were about 20 different courtrooms around the central Indianapolis area that we actively have cases in right now. Those courtrooms will send us these jury readiness memorandums that say, here are all the cases that are set for jury trial on your day. And, um, you know, we can take a look at that and say, oh, okay, well, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're five, we're, we're fifth choice out of 15. Um, you know, we've still got some negotiating that we're doing on this. So we'll ask for continuous and the court will say, cool, that's, there's 10 more cases behind you and four more cases ahead of you. Surely one of these cases is going to actually go to trial. Uh, the court can absolutely deny a continuance, and we've had that happen in the past on, on occasion, I'm sorry to say. If the court thinks that the case has been pending for too long, which means that it's just been sort of lying around, the court can say, I think this case is old enough, it needs to go to trial. Or if the court doesn't believe that the continuance is in good faith. So for example, um, if you have a case and you say, judge, you know, we just recently discovered this new witness that we want to have testify for the defense, but you've had a year and a half to locate that witness and they're coming up on the eve of trial, the court can make a determination that, well, what were you doing for the last 18 months? And if they, and if they don't like your answer, they can deny the continuance. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's generally speaking, the court will allow you as many continuances as your attorney can reasonably explain to the judge. This is why we need this continuance. There's not a magic number. It's it's not magically three. Mm -hmm. um, it's not magically two. It's not magically twenty. It's it's again. It just goes to the issue of can you adequately explain to the judge this is why we need the continuance. This is what we're working on. And if the court agrees with it, you get the continuance. It doesn't matter if mm -hmm. it's the first or the fiftieth. They'll they'll give it to you if they think it's appropriate. Good to know. I mean, hey, these are great, by the way, audience. We appreciate you guys sending some of these in to us. Um, you know, we're knee deep here in courtroom myths. The next one, this is a, this is an interesting one. Uh, you know, kind of. I guess I guess maybe where this myth might stem from is the you know the statute of limitations. Maybe that's where that comes into play. But the myth here is is do warrants eventually go away? Talk us through this one, Jack. They absolutely do not. Um, a warrant is. There are two types of warrants that get issued by a court. There's what's referred to as a probable cause warrant, which is issued at the time that charges are initially filed. There's also a warrant that's referred to as a rearrest warrant that is issued by the court because someone either failed to appear for a legal proceeding or they violated a term of a suspended sentence or pretrial release. So, for example, if as part of your bond conditions, you're required to wear a GPS monitor bracelet and you cut that bracelet off, they'll issue a warrant for your rearrest because you have violated a term of your condition. Building off of your, your comment about the statute of limitations, and I do think that that's where this myth has come from, the statute of limitations is basically the amount of time that the state has to file criminal charges. Once those charges are filed, the statute of limitations is satisfied. So if, uh, for example, the, the statute of limitations for a felony, for most felony offenses in the state of Indiana is five years. Um, if a defendant is charged with a forgery offense for, for, for passing bad checks or fraudulently using credit cards, those both fall under the, the forgery statute. If they're accused of committing a forgery offense three years before the charges are filed, but in year three, the charges are filed. That satisfies the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations has now been dealt with because the charges were filed before that five-year time limit. When the charges are filed, the court will likely issue the probable cause warrant for the arrest of the defendant. And that warrant stays active. If it takes 10 years for them to arrest someone on that warrant, it doesn't matter. There's not a statute of limitations issue because the warrant was issued pursuant to charges that were filed within the statute of limitations. Now, to the extent that the longer it takes for them to arrest you, the better your case might be, that's 
a really, really dangerous way of playing the game. Um, <laughs> certainly, the long, certainly the longer distance. The reason we have statutes of limitation generally is because there's a recognition that the further and further away you get from an original incident, the original crime, the harder it is for people to remember the events clearly, um, people move, people sometimes pass away, and your ability to confront the evidence of the witnesses against you goes down significantly. Yeah, That is a separate concern, though, over whether or not the statute of limitations has been satisfied and whether or not that warrant should have ever been recalled or disappeared. Mm-hmm. Same situation with a warrant for, your, for a person's rearrest. If you have violated a term of a case, whether it's a suspended sentence for probation or a pretrial release condition, um, they absolutely will go get you. you. You're under the thumb of the court system at that point in time. There's mm-hmm. not a situation where that's going to expire because you have an obligation to the system at that point in time, and they're not going to let you go on that very easily. So um, you're not going to outrun a warrant. We, we have yeah. had situations where people have tried. Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, we, we, we've had individuals who, um, I, my, my favorite one, we have one that actually fled to Kuwait of all places to get away wow. from the warrant. His warrant's still active and that warrant was issued about 10 years ago. So wow. he's probably so no. not, yeah, he's, he's probably not coming back. <laughs> probably sure. okay at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, the, you know, but, that warrant's going to stay there forever. Yep. That uh, does not expire. Uh, that takes us to our next one, Jack. Uh, alleged victims can drop charges. Walk us through this one. Generally speaking, the answer is no. And I, and again, as I say with a lot of these things, I can only really give you the Indiana perspective with mm-hmm. certainty because that's that's where I'm licensed. That's where I know the laws exactly. But I imagine most states are very similar to this. Once charges are filed, charges are brought by the prosecuting attorney in the name of – the community as a whole. Um, for example, in in uh, in California, it's the people. Uh, in Indiana, it's the state. In Kentucky, it's the Commonwealth. Whatever the collective phrase is for how the charges are brought, that's who the charges belong to. They don't belong to the individual person. It's not a civil suit. It's not alleged victim A versus defendant B. It's the state of Indiana versus the defendant. So the state of Indiana owns those charges. Now, with regards to what an alleged victim does or doesn't want to have happen, their opinion, their their input can direct what the prosecutor does or does not want to do with regards to how to proceed, uh, such as do we offer a plea agreement? Do we insist on a trial? Uh, Do we offer a particular type of plea agreement? it's virtually impossible once charges are filed for an alleged victim to simply tell the prosecutor, I don't want this to proceed forward anymore. I want you to dismiss the case. That is completely within the discretion and within the authority of the prosecutor to make that decision. And it usually does not result in a decision where the prosecutor is going to say, well, you know, I guess we'll get him next time from, from the state's perspective this entire mechanism got rolling because the defendant was alleged to have committed a criminal offense against this victim. And there's obvious for very obvious reasons. I'm not always the best friend of the prosecutor, uh, but I will give them a little bit of sympathy in this regard, Mm -hmm. especially as it relates to things like domestic cases. There are a lot of instances where an alleged victim will fear retaliation or fear some sort of other uh, negative backlash um, if they proceed with a prosecution. So from the state's perspective, they're not going to be entirely certain with regards to, is this person telling me to drop the the case, drop the charges because nothing happened? Um, Or are they asking me to do this because they're in fear for their safety or for fear for someone else's safety? Uh, It's also important to note that, um, and and this is something that comes up again in the domestic situation, um, an alleged victim can expose themselves to criminal liability for filing a false police report if they basically say, well, I just made it up. You know, he didn't actually hit me. That Mm. is a crime. You can't use, the, the police aren't your referees. You can't mm-hmm. lie to the police. The police can lie to you. We talked about that earlier, but you can't <laughs> lie to the police sure. and say arrest that person because you know you're 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 harming another complete different individual. So that's why that's a crime. Um, 
now that being said, there are ways that a, a good defense attorney can work with an alleged victim who wants charges to go away to kind of help minimize the damages that have been caused or in some cases maneuver things to where the state is basically backed into the corner of dismissing charges. Um, but it's absolutely not the, – the, the, mm-hmm. the victim has no control over that. That is not right. their discretion. It's not their authority. Got it. Got it. So, and as we're talking about the idea of the state and the, you know, the charges being brought by the state, here's our next one. It's going to cost the state a lot of money to try my case. Talk us through this one, because I feel like this is a very popular myth, this idea that trials cost a lot of money to both sides of the aisle. The reality of the matter is a trial is going to cost the defendant a lot more than it's going to cost the state. You've got to remember all the people at the courthouse are are salaried employees. <laughs> the, the judge is going to be paid the same whether the judge ever does a trial or not. The prosecutor is going to be paid the same whether the prosecutor ever does a trial or not. The court reporter, the bailiffs, the, the only people, the only additional expenses that pop up with regards to trials generally are the amount of money that has to go into paying jurors which is abysmally low in indiana uh, if i remember correctly in indiana we only pay jurors 40 dollars per day so if if you've got a full jury with uh 12 members plus two alternates um you're looking at you're looking about 560 dollars per day of trial so that's that's what you're now costing the state is about $560 for the trial. Um, Sometimes officers will, police officers or sheriff's deputies will get overtime for providing security or for coming in to testify. But again, that stuff's pretty negligible. And, and that, that, that daily trial cost of about 560 or so dollars, there is a budget that's built into it. It's absolutely true that if more people started demanding their right to a trial, the system would grind to a halt because they simply wouldn't have enough time or enough resources to try everyone because there's only one courtroom, there's only one judge, there's a limited number of trials that can happen at any given time. But to argue that it's somehow going to be financially bad for the state or financially Mm -hmm. expensive for the state, that is incorrect. The expense is going to usually fall on the defendant because the defendant, uh, what a private attorney is, a private attorney is basically a private contractor. We are a specialist that you are hiring to do a particular job for right. you. And the investment that goes along with that is going to be based off of what work do you need us to do for you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that cost is going to be more to you than it is going to be to the state because the state mm-hmm. has the state has a budget set aside. It's like, okay, you yeah. know, we did... We did 100 juries last year. You know, we need a budget for you know maybe 120 this year. So they've they've got that carved out. It's yeah. not like it's not like they had to go to petty cash and get a bunch of twenty dollars bills <laughs> right. out for people. Right. Right. No. So I mean, that's a that's a good one. I feel like that is a, uh, you know a myth that popped up a lot from our audience. And let so let's bring it home here in terms of our final courtroom myth that we received from you guys, and that is public defenders. So if you're not going out and seeking a private defense attorney, public defenders they work for the state, not necessarily the defendant. Talk to us about this myth, Jack. That is. That's a that's a very frustrating myth for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. Um, first, as most people know, I I did work for the public defender. I did not work there particularly long. I did work there as a certified intern, uh, and I was there long enough to get a cup of coffee when I actually graduated. But I I was with the public defender agency at one point in time here in Marion County. There are a lot of really good public defenders. Um, some of the public defenders that I have known have absolutely been about as zealous and about as as determined and dogged as any private attorney would be because they believe in what they're doing. The problem that you run into, the problem that the perception that the public defender has is there's only so many of them to go around and there are so many criminal cases that get filed. In, in Marion County here in Indianapolis last year, you know, we filed, I, I think the statistics were that we filed almost 90,000 criminal cases in Marion County in 2021. Um, the vast majority of those cases went to the public defender agency. 
So you're talking about an agency that has attorneys that are working, you know, their individual case docket, any individual public defender might have upwards of 200 cases that they're working on. That is far beyond the American Bar Association recommendations. It's far beyond the Indiana State Bar Association recommendations. But what are you going to do? You know, there's only so much resources that do go around with that. And it's not really popular politically to say, let's give more money to the guys who are trying to keep criminals out of jail. So you've got a perfect recipe there of overworked public defenders um, constant demands from clients who, who think that um, just because you have an attorney, whether it's a paid attorney or, or, or a public defender, you're going to magically get a, a, an outcome that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of frustration with that. The other thing I think that really happens with those public defenders too that's, that's really unfortunate is, again, it goes back to the issue of you're entitled to three plea offers. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have this, People will have this idea in their head that I get three plea offers you're only bringing me one, you know, you're not doing your job right. You're just working for the state trying to get me in jail. Mm. I assure you they are doing their job properly. They are doing everything they possibly can to get you the best results, same as we are. The diff- the major difference between a public defender and a private attorney is, is more or less the amount of, of personalized attention that your case gets. Mm-hmm. And, and that is important, you know, again, even on a low level case, it is very important to have as much attention on your case as possible. Sure. Um, because if you, if your option is you can go with a public defender, who's got 200 cases, or you can go with a private attorney who's got, you know, maybe 40 cases, there's a significant more amount of time the private attorney can look to right. your case. And, and that's why it does seem like there's going to be a better result with a private attorney compared to mm-hmm. a public defender. But they don't work. I mean, they work for the state in the concept that yes, <laughs> right. Paycheck, but they're not. They're not there to throw you under the bus. They are good people. I've known a lot mm-hmm. of them. There are just as many bad private attorneys as there are bad public defenders. Um, we just have better press agents. Right <laughs> there, you go. Well, no. So I mean, to kind of in a way debunk that myth. I mean, yes, they work for the state, but they're not going to throw you under the bus. They're there exactly. to do a job, and they're passionate about that job. Exactly. So, J- Jack, as we're coming into you know the end of our time together, we saved the biggest myth of all for the last one. For you know, this was one that we can't you know we saw coming in from the audience so much uh, as we put out those requests, and here it is. Hiring an attorney makes you look guilty. How many times have we heard that, talked about it with friends and family? Jack, open this one up for us. Talk to us about this, the biggest, really, the biggest myth of them all. The only people who have attorneys are smart people. I want to make sure that is very clear and upfront. It is a mistake if the police want to question you to not have an attorney act as a shield for you. If the police want to question you about a crime, one of two things is happening. Either one, they think that you had something to do with it and they're trying to get more information out of you to make their job easier, such as get a confession or get something they can twist into a confession. Or they think you might have had something to do with it, but they're not entirely sure. So they're just going to let you talk And from there, if you say something wrong, they're going to arrest you. You are not going to talk your way out of criminal charges. The only thing that you can do is talk your way into them. If they have their mind made up already that you broke the law, you're not going to convince them otherwise. If they're not sure whether or not you broke the law, the only thing that you can do by talking to them and not having an attorney do this for you is give them something that they can use against you. There is zero value in not having an attorney to defend you on that. That's literally what our job is. Um, And we do it very well. We have uh, one of the things that we have here at our office, we do have a program that we refer to as the Platinum Defense Membership Program, which is a membership that we offer to people who think that they might need an attorney, gives them that security of knowing they have an attorney on retainer if they need it. And if they need that person to talk to the police and what we've been able to do on, on dozens and dozens of occasions is by standing as a shield between our clients and the police, we've actually been able to prevent charges from even being filed in the first place. It doesn't really matter whether or not the police think you look guilty. If they're going to arrest you, they're going to arrest you Mm -hmm. again. 
much like we said, the entire consistency with the entire police miss thing is like, don't make their job easier. Right. You have a right to remain silent. Use it. Don't give them Mm -hmm. information used against you. You have a right to refuse a search. Use it. Don't just basically hand up evidence against you on a silver platter. Um, I have, I have never had a client that retained us during the investigation stage of a criminal prosecution who was arrested that would not have been arrested whether I was there or not. I have had a few dozen that we prevented from getting arrested because we were there to basically tell our tell the police officer, hey, you know, we're representing this person. You know, all future communications need to be sent to our office. We are not going to make a statement at this point in time. And they got stonewalled. They couldn't find any additional information to proceed forward with, and their case fell apart. There you go. Smart people have attorneys. Mm-hmm. If there's one takeaway from this episode, we saved that biggest myth for them all. It really comes down to that, Jack. It's that idea of smart people have attorneys. I, I know you've been chopping at the bit to get into this one here uh, at the end of the episode today. But look, uh, of all the myths that we went through today, if there's one that you really want to take home, it's this idea of, of smart people hire an attorney. We we unpacked police myths. We unpacked courtroom myths. There's a lot of myths surrounding criminal law as a whole out there. And hopefully we did a great job of diving into those for you guys, our audience, and, you know, fielding some of those requests from you and unpacking each one of them today. Um, Jack, you know, uh, if if anybody out there uh, is, you know, they're interested in any of these myths and and maybe want to discuss it a little further, maybe with you or your team or, or reach out to you guys about that platinum defense membership program, what would be the best way that you would have them uh, reach out to you and your team to get a conversation started? Telephone calls, as always, are usually the best. We do have operators standing by 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure that you're always getting a live operator. The telephone number here for our office is 317-983-5333. That is always going to be the best way of getting in contact with us. Like I said, we can usually set appointments within 24 to 48 hours, depending on attorney availability. You can also email us at info at rdlawoffice.com. That's how we got most of these questions that were sent to us for today's episode. Uh, Either those are perfectly fine. Uh, Any further questions about these, any questions about anything, we're happy to answer them. That's what our job is to do for you is to answer your questions so that you know what you're, you know what you're getting into. You're making fully informed decisions and we're always happy to do it for you. Fantastic. Well, Jack, look, I know you're a busy guy. We appreciate you carving some time out of your day to be with us here on the show and uh, we'll let you get back to, to cracking cases. Pleasure as always. All righty. Awesome. And hey, look, we want to take one final moment as always. Thank you guys, our audience, especially in today's episode for being with us. And of course, submitting some of these awesome myths that we were able to unpack. You know, if there's any topics or questions down the road that you'd like to see Jack and I unpack, please feel free to, you know, email that address Jack mentioned just moments ago, uh, and we'll be able to, you know, reach out to you and and obviously unpack them in in future episodes down the line. Uh, But look, At the end of the day, we're bringing the same criminal law-related discussions that Jack is having with his team over at Razumich and Associates, and we're bringing them right here to you guys on this show. We've got some great topics queued up for some some future episodes, that is, and we're looking forward to having you guys back with us for those. So for Mr. Jack Razumich, I'm Ryan Ruff. We're going to go ahead and say so long, but we thank you guys one final time for being with us on today's installment of Closing Arguments. 